and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm Daniel Hanley, one of your hosts, and joining me on the other line, now that he's finished folding laundry in the basement, heavy quotation marks, <laughs> it's John McMahon. Wow, Danielle, thank you. It was a lot of laundry. Uh, I had to get behind the washing machine and into the secret compartment in the wall in order to fold more laundry, uh, and no firearms were back there this time. Uh, but Danielle, it's it's not just us today. We have another no. special guest. Uh, this is an exciting moment for all of us, because we have with us on the other line, Associate Professor of Political Science at Manhattan <laughs> College. The menchiest person I know, even though he would never admit it, and he does not accept compliments gracefully, this is the person probably singly most responsible for me getting in a sustainable academic job. This is my amateur fitness instructor. This is the CEO of Keller Keller Industries, which may or may not exist. And it's the person most relevant for the podcast, most eager to call me on my bullshit. The one and only John Keller. John, welcome to the program. Who are you kidding? First of all. <laughs> Look, McMahon, we know you check your metrics like 10, 15 times a day. And big shocker there, you're bleeding Gen Xers. All right? <laughs> so you figure, okay, I'll bring this one guy who is willing to do this to basically turn the ship around to come in nice and smooth at the end of season one to set us up for succeeding in season two. So I, I get it. You know, I'm willing to be used in this way. And yeah, you're, you're our token to Nexter. Like, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> Danielle? Uh, yeah, same. And I'm also like, uh, it'll be season one, season two, season three, yeah. season yeah. four. You're, you're, this For is the next already, 75 years. <laughs> this is already our recurring guest, John Keller. Aww, this is only you. his first time. John, well, I, am on, I am on sabbatical in the fall, so uh, great. I can, I can squeeze you guys in. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's vacationing in Nice or something. I don't yeah. know, Riviera. <laughs> So, John, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about you. Unlike most of our previous guests have watched the entirety of The Americans, what appeals about it? What appeals to you about it? Well, I think for me, you know, I I remember the show because I was basically 14 or 15 when it was, you know, when it's set. And so it's fun to like sort of see what life was like when I was like a young teenager. I was in the middle of the Cold War. I mean, if you combination being my age, study politics and culture and so on. It's kind of, and, and a show that's so well made like this show is, it's going to be irresistible to someone like me, you know? Perfect. That's um, what we like to hear. That makes a uh, lot of sense. So I love it. Today, the episode of Perfect Television, potentially, that we're talking about is American Season 1, Episode 13, The Colonel, directed by Adam Arkin and written by Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg. And Danielle, would you like to read an episode summary for us? I would. The IMDb summary says, when Philip and Elizabeth are ordered to go through with a meeting that could potentially be a setup, they find themselves confronted with unexpected truths about their relationship. Stan's investigation puts him and the FBI even closer to the Jennings. Okay. That's that's a, quite the place to start. And one of the reasons for that is that the tension in the relationship and the tension over the mission are incredibly amplified in relation to one another in this episode. So, Danielle, what did you make of the argument between Philip and Elizabeth over who was going to do which of the two missions? Yeah, I think this is an interesting place to start because it's like we've been building to this point for the entire season, both in our own episodes, but also in the episodes of the show, right? Like thinking through the way in which Philip and Elizabeth's relationship then, um, you know, expands out to impact all of these other pieces. And so I, uh, 
it was tough for me because on the one hand, I wanted to read Philip's like, I'll do the mission as like a, a sort of an, a moment of toxic masculinity sort of rearing its ugly head again for, for the show. But I also think there's something else happening there that it's not necessarily just toxic masculinity. Like his desire to take over the like meeting the Colonel from Elizabeth doesn't necessarily seem to be an extension of like, I am manly and I will save the day, but, but like real fear or care or sort of like something else. So I don't know. In our typical, typical, not quite great books fashion, it does feel like a little bit of a both end. John, how like as part of the stakes of this, to Danielle's point, are who would take the kids? And the result of the they assume it is the mission with the colonel is the mission that will go bad. Obviously, they end up being wrong about that. But what? did you think about the specific conversation they have like hidden in the dining room away from the kids while they're all watching the hockey playoffs or whatever, uh, where the, who is going to do the mission becomes a, who would take the kids if one of us is captured discussion. Well, you guys have talked a lot on, on this about how real Wait, the John, you, you actually listened to episodes before oh you came my on. God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lucky wow. yes, lucky yes. Watch anyway, the episode I, and listen to episodes. I, I assume, given that you're both very smart, that you, <laughs> you, you've discussed their relationship, how it, whether it's real or not or fake. Right? I think that's what I'm you're probably anyway, so this is, a, this is another piece of information we have about, is this relationship real? Is it fake? Are they real parents? To what extent are they real parents and artificial parents and so on? And I love this. I love this line that she turns to him and she says, Philip, you're the one they understand. Right. Yeah. Meaning they're closer to you. You're almost like saying you're really a father to them much more than I'm a mother to them. Yeah. I, just, I like that. Yeah. And I think like we, the show has been priming us for that over the last couple of episodes. We get that scene. It's either in the last episode or two episodes ago where Elizabeth comes to Philip's apartment and like Philip and Paige are like playing and laughing and, and like joking with each other. And Elizabeth even seems a little bit hurt. So yeah. Elizabeth saying to Philip, like, you're the one they like, you're the one that understands them. Really, it, that feels like something that we've earned, right? Because we've seen mm -hmm. Philip, like, engaging with his kids in a way that, like, seems to be not closed off, but maybe, like, a little too far away or a little too, something a little too authentic to, that Elizabeth can't, can't quite reach, yeah, because there's this shift from the version of this conversation they had at the beginning of the season when it was, I forget which mission in particular, but it was, Philip, I'm going to go do this mission so that if I get captured, you're more American, you are more able to, like, stay with the kids <laughs> yeah. and they're closer to you for that way. Whereas here, presumably that is consciously or subconsciously at the back of Elizabeth's mind when she's trying to convince Philip to take what she thinks is the less dangerous mission, yeah. except that the explicit terms of the discussion have shifted, right? In part as a result of the fact that they split up, that they separated. Yeah. And I think also that like Elizabeth is the one more often than not to want to stick to the letter of the mission, right? So like, and she's using that here, saying, it's my mission from my officer. I, I received it. You didn't. She's using that to bolster her case. In a way that they're willing to 
rely on that defense when it's useful and throw it out the window when it's not, because, you know, they're also like, well, why don't we just not do this kernel mission because it's ridiculous that they're asking us to do this. Let's try to get Claudia reassigned. They're also willing to buck the orders to fight that particular uh, justification mechanism when they would like to. Agree. (laughs) And in my brain, it's a little bit like, if they use it when when it's convenient, sort of in the same way that Stan is a is good at his job as an FBI agent when it's convenient, right? right. Like, <laughs> and like when he wants to like bang Nina, then he's bad at it. <laughs> yeah, any Nina related things are 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 less useful, you know. In, in the terms of the plot mechanisms of the show itself, right? It is not the meeting with the colonel that is a setup, but it is the fact that. They were set up through Viola, who was cleaning the Weinberger's house, who put the bug in. Then she told the bug, told the FBI about the bug and so on and so forth. And that leads to this fake meeting that they stage where they know that somebody from the KGB, one of the Directorate S officers, has to go pick up the recording. So it's, in fact, this mission, the one that they had assumed to be the safe one, that is, in fact, the thing that is the threat to them, right? And, like, so they got it exactly wrong, right? Right. And I'm wondering if, like, that broader incompetence is telling us anything about the characters or telling us about, like, the Claudia, Philip, Elizabeth relationship or about how, like, Arcadia and Claudia are relating to their officers or anything like that. And then something else that I was thinking about, which I think speaks to the, like, their incompetence part, is when Elizabeth is walking to the car in broad daylight... I might, I might add, she doesn't check the like <clears throat> suspicious 12 cars that are around. Like there are a lot of people that come out of the woodwork when, when Philip eventually comes and picks her up. Like she's not checking that like weird van. I don't know. I'm just like, hello, why, why are you not like doing a drive by to see what's going on in the area before? Like it just seemed like failed spycraft. <laughs> Right. Also, she's the one initially who, sa- who says, I'm worried this is a setup. Remember when she meets with Claudia and then all of a sudden there, it's like she forgets that she had that initial suspicion. Right. Yeah. You know, which she shares with Claudia, even though she's trying to get Claudia worked out. On the one hand, she they're in agreement about they, they both smell a rat. Yeah. They, the rat's just in the wrong place, but they yeah. know that something is wrong. But you're right. That's kind of absent minded of her there to just walk past it. 12 Lincoln Continentals <laughs> and, a, and a repair van that's like named repair van or like something. <laughs> it's like come on like you don't have to right. be deep in Daniel Dossier to like to just like look over your fucking shoulder yeah exactly Exactly. And I mean, the the meeting with the colonel is a fascinating contrast to this because the colonel is basically of the mindset that this is all bullshit and both the U.S. and the Soviets are fucking everything up and wasting money and risking nuclear war for no purpose. You know, like he is insistent that the ballistic missile defense program is a sham no one thinks it's going to work. It's 50 years away. And his only like reason why this would continue is that it's a psyop against the Soviets to spend themselves into oblivion and like risk nuclear war in the process. So the dis, uh, the way in which the colonel is disheartened by the whole thing compared with the extreme investment in emotional stakes that Philip and Elizabeth have in these two missions is quite the contrast. Yeah, and, like, investment, but 
investment almost in a backwards way. Like they're invested in the missions not happening, right? Like they're, they're, and I think this is something incredibly interesting where I think a lot of the times this season we have seen Philip and Elizabeth trust their gut in, in moments where maybe non-trained spies like us on this, on this, uh, here podcast episode. wouldn't necessarily do that. And this, in this episode, it's like you all have these bad feelings, but you're not trusting those feelings. I guess maybe Philip is sort of trusting his feelings because he takes, he takes the Colonel mission instead of Elizabeth. But in so doing, he sends her into the belly of the beast because they've like messed up so bad. I mean, the prize is so great here to remember, right? I mean, okay. If the star Wars thing is real to have it is just too, it's a little unrealistic, by the way, that this one colonel has the whole Star Wars. Like, here, here's, right. a, here's a Star Wars on a floppy 3.5. Like <laughs> anyway, right? Here's Reagan's plan. But anyway. See, that's the Gen but, X energy right. we wanted yeah, John like, to bring to this podcast. I remember he's, being he's scared pulling, about that. He's pulling off the, like, printer paper <laughs> size. That's <laughs> the daisy wheel holes in it and shit. Yeah. <laughs> the okay. empty printer paper is Elizabeth is, like, putting blank sheets of paper into the Xerox. <laughs> to like, like, more turning the Xerox noise. on. Right. It's like... Like, what do but, people think in your office when you just turn on the Xerox machine? Anyway, John. That was, no, no. Star Wars, though, was a, look, I mean, some people thought Reagan was crazy. Some people thought the technology was real. Um, you know, as somebody who watched the day after when he was 13, I mean, it scared the fucking shit out of me, you know? And yeah. like, yeah. And then, and then the, the, the kind of black box at that point about what the Russians perception of that is what they knew about it did they think it was real there's a funny line before a couple episodes ago where they say uh you know the americans just just elected a madman you know and it's like funny that that's the way he's because you know my family thought that too about reagan and like just imagine being a russian how much scarier that would be right yeah um you know that that happened or something like that but then the idea that it was all just in Reagan's, like Reagan saw Star Wars or whatever, and was like, oh, yeah, we can we should build one of them. You know, get one of them lasers and knock down all the ABMs, right? Just uh, put a, put a yeah. womp rat on. Yeah, fly my, my T-16 in there and bullseye yeah. womp rats, you know? Where are those X-Wings? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's funny how that guy is, like, saying it's bullshit. It's at least 50 years away, Right. And then this question of to what extent was Reagan's bluster successful, right, is kind of out there, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of compelling Soviet or influencing Soviet behavior, right? Well, and it, like, goes to a, a deeper question that I think this episode, but also the show in general, is asking is, like, what is truth, right? What counts as truth? And John's laughing. What counts as truth? And, like, who knows the truth is absolutely right. something. And, like who's performing some kind of like having the information, even though the information like is a smoke screen. So the points that you you have just made actually really crystallize something for me about the show, the Americans that I hadn't realized before that that one of the reasons this is in, this is a, a, an excellent vehicle for examining the cold war is because Reagan is like our film president, right? The whole like, you know, Michael Rogan reading of Ronald Reagan of, um, and like the fact that Reagan himself like had his film background. And so he is, uh, to whatever extent, like worried about projections and stuff that so much of the cold war to your two's points is about, well, who is reading 
what actions in what particular way and which actions are considered to be truthful and which actions are considered to be somebody running an op against me. So I have to see the more complicated view, just like how much projection and playing with like what indeed is reality or what is truth is so much of particularly perhaps the Reagan era of the Cold War that examining that through this particular spy show set in the 80s amid Reagan is actually a really fascinating way to enact some of the same kind of like, uh, if I may, epistemological questions that the uh, Reagan administration posed. We reject that word on this <laughs> podcast. John, no com- John, John no is shaking comment. his head. <laughs> no, no comment. No comment. By the way, by the way, I want to say one thing, which is, you know, uh, I've been counting up the number of big words you guys are using in each episode, and there was, it was a trigger point at which I would have had to cancel had you reached <laughs> a, certain, a certain threshold. And luckily, Uh-oh. luckily for you guys, you never hit the threshold. Now, granted, I put it pretty high up, so figuring that, that was figuring you would get up you. there, <laughs> figuring you would get up there, but uh, you know. So I think Danielle, that what John just told us is that we're at risk of him just leaving the Zencaster <laughs> call if I say that word one more time. I, I mean, so. like I mean, I'm ready to go because I'm like, <laughs> fuck, I have to look up this word again <laughs> every Listen, time. <laughs> I didn't say I knew exactly what the word <laughs> meant or entailed, right? I just used it. <laughs> <laughs> this is like flashback to when I made my students read Puar and they almost like had a mutiny in the classroom. <laughs> I, I know what I'm getting into. So I'll that. I can't, I can't, I can't, at this point, I can't complain after months of, you know, negotiating with my agent and so on. I can't be like, Oh wow. I have, gonna, I have thoughts about your agent. They're coming later in the episode. Don't Wait, worry. I have a, I, I, I want to extend the point. I'm not going to use the word epistemological at all. Um, but I want to yeah. extend the point that that you made, John, because I think what perhaps like makes this even more interesting, at least for me, is like thinking about Reagan as the like movie president, right? Like, and thinking about like this question of like what is reality and what is truth. Like, we get a version of that on steroids with Trump and the like. Um, alternative facts, like post-truth, blah, 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 right? Like that that is only possible because we've entered into an era where like reality is, is like up for grabs and that's happening sort of like in the thick of the cold war, but extending far beyond that. Reagan was so much better at it than Trump. I mean, two thirds of the country, million the guy, not 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 forty two percent or whatever Trump's max was. So it's like yeah. you watch this, and you grew up in the Reagan era. It's much scarier. Yeah. Um. You know, Reagan was at least charismatic. Like he was yeah. scary, but he was charismatic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's like that was the background of my like growing up. Right? It was Reagan and then Bush. You know. Yeah. Um. I mean, speaking of the CIA, right? Like George Bush, you know, director right. or deputy director of the CIA, right? Can I ask a question, though? I'm just curious. So what year, roughly, do you think this uh, season episode takes? In other words, we're not, so we're not at Gorbachev yet. Are mm-hmm. we like Brezhnev? Is he dead yet? Is he alive? Is it because there was like a three clowns between Gorbachev and, and Brezhnev, <laughs> like, right, Andropov, Chernyenko, right? And I don't, I don't know the order. I don't remember. But I'm just I mean, wondering, I didn't like, what, even know those people. So right. wow. the reason, I'm, no, the reason I'm asking is because you guys remarked upon like these very far down the chain actors mm-hmm. are acting out what's going on at this massive geopolitical yeah. level of decision making, right? And we're f- focused in on this meeting in a park of this colonels commenting on that, right? Yeah. 
And I'm just yeah. curious, like, you know, it makes a big difference. So it's definitely not Gorbachev yet, for sure. Yeah, so it's really. so Brezhnev uh, dies in 82. And mm. so this season of the Americans is set in 81, and I think it gets into some 82. Um, I can double check that as we're talking, though. And then we okay. have, you know, a couple years of, or a year and a half of Andropov. Then we have a year of Chernenko, and then we have Gorbachev. So it's very aggressive Reagan era period. Um, rhetoric. In other words, he has a change of heart about nuclear weapons, whatever, later in the second term and all that. But this is like, we elected you to kick some ass and he's like going to yeah. go out and kick some ass. And this is where we are in the background, right? This is the new Western. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank, so you. Thank you for shortening my, you know, four paragraph <laughs> attempt to try to say this. Thing. Yeah, I'll exactly. take it. <laughs> so according to the Americans uh, wiki, the fandom wiki, uh, war, this episode is May 1981 on the timeline. Okay. All right. I wasn't um, born yet. Same. Uh, no, that also is coming up later, so we oh, can we can get into we'll get it. No, because, no, just one last thing. So, so after the Russians invade Afghanistan, Carter starts yeah. a military buildup, and then Reagan like yeah. shoots steroids into it. So, from the Russian perspective, you could see how this would be a terrifying like escalation of a kind of situation of stasis before that, right? Yeah. Well, and also um, a few ep- somewhere in the middle of the season, we they get those plans, and so like. This is in, in geopolitically, but also within the, the, the season of the show, this is a, a reality until the meeting with the Colonel, right? Like that, that escalation is something that they, like they've seen the plans for the escalation. And the Afghanistan yeah. point is a good one because that will become an increasing part of the show itself, right? The Soviets getting bogged down in Afghanistan and what happens there, so on and yeah. so forth as we get into future. I mean, they lost a million people there, that's, and that's extraordinary, like, right? Yeah. So if we can maybe shift gears a tiny bit, and that is um, to Claudia, because as much as this is a incredibly plot heavy episode. I mean, whenever you mention the fact like Elizabeth gets shot and barely survives as of the, the end of the episode, Wild. <laughs> so, Wild. you know, but for as much as like, there's this much plot and all, there are all these things happening between Philip and Elizabeth and in relation to their kids and all of that. There's also a lot of Claudia in this episode. And I think yeah. that all three of us particularly found the scene where Claudia and Elizabeth kind of share a meal together to be particularly <laughs> pertinent in this regard. So, John, what did you make of that scene? Well, they're, they're, it's so funny. There's tension between them because she knows that she's trying to get her worked out, number one. Yeah. But they're mm-hmm. also in agreement in the sense that they they see the situation in the same way in the sense that they both f- smell a rat, right? Mm-hmm. Her saying, you know, you've been in the field too long. Yeah. Where I've warned them about, I've warned them about the, how they're in danger of losing you. And then she says, and whether you see it or not, I'm right. And then she says, I know you better than you know yourself. And you mm-hmm. don't know me at all. Mm-hmm. I got so mad at that. That's a mouthful, boy. Let me tell you. <laughs> but the thing is, Claudia is actually not wrong there. <laughs> no. <laughs> not Danielle, Danielle maybe would contest my judgment. No, I don't think she's wrong, but it doesn't make me like her anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially... <laughs> Especially after the power move of being like, here, Elizabeth, I ordered for you. And Elizabeth is just like, no fucking way. I'm setting this aside. Which Claudia then tries to, like, save the power move of it all by taking a bite from the plate at the end. <laughs> yeah, she reaches over and yeah. 
grabs it, you know, like Tony Soprano style, right? <laughs> sticks in, t- yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's true. Right? Also, never seen The Sopranos. Yeah, but it's like eggs Florentine. It's not yeah. like you know. But I fucking, was like, you know. the political theorist in me was like, what's the significance of eggs Florentine? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 pull it back, pull it back, pull it back. It's a TV show. <laughs> I guess, I guess he gives an alternative cave uh, possibility of Machiavelli via the eggs Florentine. Yeah, yeah, he never comes up in this show. Yeah, right? <laughs> Real clever. Guys, real clever. <laughs> can anything pass you two? It's <laughs> Florentine. I caught that. I saw that. I saw what they were doing there. I saw what they're doing there. I know what they're doing there. Oh my god! I mean, and so the other like thing about that particular scene, in addition to the ex Florentine, is this question about who is and isn't following the rules and regulations, right? Because Elizabeth is at the same time, the one who understands herself to be the most devoted to the cause. Yeah. And it is Claudia who's being like, you've lost touch with your obligations to the the Soviet union. You've lost touch with the rules and regulations. You've lost touch with the chain of command. And probably all of those things are true. And so the question of what is Elizabeth committing to? Is it, you know, whatever her like own projection of the Soviet Union and what are her emotional attachments to the Soviet Union compared to the actual like institutions that hypothetically offer the rules and regulations that govern her behavior? Go for it. Uh, well, I think, like I said before, though, this is a particularly reactionary, in some ways, desperate period of trying to hang on to yeah. this remains of the Soviet Union's power, right? And so that reflects that kind of, you know, my reading of that, one way to read it would be to say it reflects this kind of desperate reactionary kind of moment, right? Where the rules then become very important because when things are slipping away, that's not an accident. She says, oh, I warned them they're in danger of you slipping away. Too. Yeah. And the whole thing is also slipping away. And that's what you do. You, you kind of, uh, and in, in, in religious terms, we'd say it's a declensive posture that they yeah. take, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. completely what it is, right? Yeah. Well, and I would also say that like the, this, like that the whole thing is in danger of slipping away is illustrated to us by virtue of the, like the big swing they're willing, they're willing to take, even though all of the flags are like, don't take this swing. Don't go to this meeting. Something (laughs) is wrong, but they're like, everyone (laughs) still doing it. So I think like that's there. I would say the other thing too, is just with regard to Claudia, um, this is something we talked about maybe a couple of weeks ago, but so when Claudia comes onto the scene, there's this talk of Gabriel. And I was like, John, who is Gabriel? And John's like, don't worry, you haven't met him. Like, and so already though, Claudia is like operating on a different protocol than like at least Philip and Elizabeth were used to for a while, like meeting up with their, the agent, like their like handler all the time. And so, like, I think that that just, on the one hand, John, following from what you were saying, it might tell us something about sort of, like, how desperate the situation is, that Claudia Mm. is, like, always there, always, like, sort of on top of them in a way that, like, they weren't used to. And also that, like, like, that something is wrong because that is the way that things are operating. And something mm-hmm. is wrong, right? Something's so wrong that Arkady, who is presumably under surveillance all of the time, meets with Claudia, right? Gets in the car and meets with her and has this very dramatic scene between the two of them. <laughs> I love that. Right? I love that conversation. I know. It's so good. I right. mean, Love Gorn and Margot Martindale are incredible. And we'll hear more about Love Gorn later as well, uh, who plays Arkady, our, our boy. Um, 
Yes. I just want to say that I would 1 million percent watch like the further adventures of Arcadia and Claudia, like the infinitely running series. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, uh, they're good. Yeah, they're good together. But go on. Wait, sorry, John. What, yeah, you, sorry. You oh, no, no. So just yeah. that, I mean, so we, f- we find out several things in that conversation, right? So first of all, Claudia obviously knows or learns from Arcadia that she is being reassigned. And Claudia is like, okay, I get that. But harbors seemingly zero negative feelings or at least negative feelings that would at all lessen her devotion to trying to support Elizabeth and Philip in their mission. And then secondly, we learn in that, that indeed Claudia has been telling the KGB headquarters the whole time, this is a terrible fucking idea, but because of her understanding of her role in the chain of command, she never particularly tells Philip and Elizabeth that she has those same concerns and has relayed them upwards. And rather she's one that's just like, well, Moscow says this, Moscow says that, that's what you're going to do. So we learn so much more in terms of Claudia's depth and her kind of multiple perspectives and the way that she understands her role to function through that particular conversation. Wait, who outranks who there between the two of them? Great question. Same question. Or do we not know? Or are they like, is there, is there separate? Uh... My assumption would be that Arcadia outranks Claudia because she says to him, you have the authority right, to like right, call right. the play on the field. Yeah. Which Arcadia's like, that has <laughs> literally never been done. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But you can. Do yes. I remember what sign to paint on the car? <laughs> oh, wait. wait, is it a Z or an N? Or is it an upside down uh, M? Or a W? Wait. Never held a bottle of spray paint in his life. Right. <laughs> Where'd they get the spray paint, Which by the way? probably yeah. true. Like, maybe Arkady Ivanovich had never held a can of spray <laughs> paint before. But even if he's the one calling the play, why is he the one putting the sign on the car? Because <laughs> like, he's Arkady, and Arkady's awesome. Yes. Basically, he's awesome. Because his hand is peeled from the potato incident. Yeah, man. Like, give me the fucking spray can. I'm going to do it myself. (laughs) My call. I did it. I called the audible. I'm going to go down in a ball of flame. If the Star Wars thing is real, we missed it. But I'm doing it. (laughs) Fuck it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> um, do we want to? So, do either of you have anything else to say about Claudia and Arcadi? I mean, I have a question for you, Daniel. Yeah. Actually, okay. like, how did you, as a first-time watcher of the series, react to that particular scene, given the somewhat different light that Claudia enters as a result of it? I was really surprised that she w- w- she was pushing back against Moscow. That we learned that in this in this back and forth with Arkady that she's like telling Moscow that she's got a bad feeling about it, that she's basically taking the same line that Philip and Elizabeth have been taking against her against Moscow. I was really surprised about that because like, she doesn't seem like someone who, I I think maybe it goes back to the point about like reality and truth, right? Like to me, she didn't seem like someone who was going to be lying to Philip and Elizabeth. Um, she seemed like someone who was always towing the party line, which I guess she is, except that I thought that she would be towing the party line, like, and in agreement with it. So, yeah, I was surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and this, you know, sadly does mitigate the Daniel Dossier view of Claudia. I think it's, I think it's lessened somewhat or counter counterweighed somewhat in this particular scene. I'm sorry to report. 
Why are you guys so surprised? I mean, I feel like, look, the mission I, always comes first. I mean, why would that be surprised that she would suppress whatever anger she, residual angle she has about them trying to get her worked out? You know? No, that, I think the sense. thing I was surprised about is that she also disagreed. She disagreed with what Moscow was telling her to do, mm. but she was she was telling Philip and Elizabeth and like having a stone face about it. Like, no, this is this is what Moscow wants. This is what we're doing. You're here, and then I guess it like. In, in talking through this, it makes sense because, right, she's convincing them and also convincing herself at the same time that this is, like, I guess what needs to be done. This The same things that she's saying to Elizabeth, like, you've lost, you've lost the mission, you've, like, you're slipping away, like, is ostensibly, like, a conversation that she's also having with herself. And I think we see that in action, like, one, when she tries to, like, body check Elizabeth into, into torturing the CIA dude to death. And then when she goes and slits the guy's throat. Yeah, Jesus. Oh, boy. What yeah. What a scene. What a, like, and she gives more background to herself in Zhukov, right? And we met in Stalingrad, and I thought I'd never picture. seen him. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, has a 1980s taser, like, at the ready for this mission. She came incredibly prepared and then is like, I'm going to give you a sedative that's going to like shut everything down, but you're going to stay awake uh, for long enough for the 10 minutes it's going to take you to die. Like it's an exceptionally intimately brutal sort of death that she gives him, you know, befitting clearly her relationship with Zhukov and befitting the the questions about intimacy, the intimacy of violence that we've talked about on the show previously. What did you guys make of uh, Elizabeth says, remember before she says, I don't even think you had a relationship with Zuko. I still agree what's with that, that. What's, what's that? Oh, what, yeah. what is oh, that? Wow. What is that? That's, Why does I, she say that? Is it true? What do you think? I think that Elizabeth says it because she does not view Claudia as like a real person that has feelings. She only views Claudia as this sort of like obstacle to overcome at this point. Um, mm. But also like Elizabeth, had uh, like an intimate connection with Zhukov and like, I think doesn't believe that someone who she hates and distrusts as much as she does Claudia could ever have that relationship with Zhukov, which like in the grand scheme of things, I think that's a both and that's possible. I just think that the relationship with Zhukov was in Claudia's head because I hate Claudia. <laughs> oh, see, I, I, wow. Um, <laughs> see, I, Way to undercut your own theory, basically. I was just close to buying it. Really, I was like, oh my God, really? Holy shit. No, oh yeah, but she hates Claudia, so forget it. <laughs> I mean, I think the stuff about Elizabeth, I, I mean, I just think that I've internalized Elizabeth's relationship with Claudia. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I mean, I think that, like, Zhukov and Claudia had a passionate love life Absolutely together. Absolutely not. Um, is my working opinion. That's your head but, canon. But I, I think it's canon canon. But I think that, uh, to go back to, like, John's question about what, what was surprising, what was not surprising about mm-hmm. Claudia, and this I've, relates to Zhukov as well, and to this question about what Elizabeth thinks about Claudia and Claudia and Zhukov, and that from Elizabeth's perspective, Claudia taking the mission so seriously and taking Philip and Elizabeth so seriously to like do her best to protect them and protect their mission. Even after she knows that Philip and Elizabeth successfully had her reassigned would be utterly shocking to Elizabeth. Yeah. And Hmm. it's not for Claudia, right? It's not if you're, if one is outside of, 
Elizabeth's perception of Claudia, it makes perfect sense that she would still like maintain this professional respect or whatever and care for professional care or duty or obligation or something. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that's right. Even though I still hate Claudia. Um, well, the whole, should, also the, whole, the whole ideology of the Soviet regime is supposed to be impersonal in a certain way. Yeah, so yeah. it's a gross violation to like act act on your own impulses about something in violation of those things where you're not supposed to be an individual in the first place anyway. You know, it's yeah. like, be very out of line for her to do that, you know? Yeah. And the, adv- the, the advice or orders she gives to Philip and Elizabeth are so much in line with that particular understanding of the world and everybody's role in it. Yeah. Whereas Philip and Elizabeth, perhaps because of their time as the Americans have taken a somewhat more individualized or individualistic perception on it. Mm-hmm. Yes. At different paces also yes. between the two of them, yeah. of course, right? As we've talked that you guys have, as I assume, I mean that you guys have talked about <laughs> in previous <laughs> episodes. I'm just guessing again. Yeah. Listen, we are happy that there's one listener. So <laughs> we're happy it's you. You can come back anytime. <laughs> you've written your ticket. <laughs> We also get a couple important Nina scenes in this episode. Yeah. There's scenes, there's the scene with her and Arcadi, and then there's the scene with her and, scenes plural, with her and Stan. Where should we start with Nina? Let's start with her and Arcadi because I think the Nina Stan scenes, we want to take a little bit more time to, to unpack. What did you make of, of the Nina Arcadi scene? This is to either of the Johns. <laughs> uh, it's fucking hilarious because uh, he goes, he goes to her, he goes, look, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you fooled us. So you can definitely fool the Americans, you know, cause they're so much stupider than we are. <laughs> like, yeah. like totally with a hundred percent confidence. Like yeah. that is so unrealistic by the way. And so funny. Right. If that happened. Right. Just the, the, the total nonchalance of our body, that whole <laughs> yeah, scene. Right, right, right. He's yeah. just like hanging out, like sipping on some, yeah, some yeah. Chica and like having some tea and, you know, casually talking about, but talk casually talking about this like most serious crisis yeah, yeah. that the resident Torah <laughs> in the United States in Washington D.C. has probably ever experienced. He's like, he, he's like me and Moscow had a fifteen-minute conversation about it. And we determined that if you fooled us, you can definitely fool them. So go ahead and keep having sex with Stan. Anyway, next. Well, I, and I also the like. So I agree with that, but then also the part where where Arkady's like, and we think you can turn him like. It'll be fine. <laughs> Nina's like, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> like, what's happening here? And the way that Arcadi prefaces and then follows up the you can turn him statement is so fascinating to me because, I mean, obviously in a show called The Americans, the fact that Arcadi just refers to Stan as the American is just like, a <laughs> you know, who is the real American is, you know, a question. But right. more importantly, Arcadi follows up, you can turn him and responds to Nina's like skeptical facial expression that she gives him with, it's clear that he's weak and vulnerable. Watch again, like Arcadi is right. Yeah. <laughs> and Nina knows that and has used that to great effect for herself very extensively throughout the second half of the season. Agree. Also, like Arcadi's got reads for days and they're all correct. <laughs> Women are always a fundamental weakness for so many political theorists that they just, right? They just like, 
for thinking Rousseau, Machiavelli. I was just thinking just about Rousseau. <laughs> they distract men from their or, otherwise ordinary rational behavior. Is like, <laughs> right, right? You know, right? I was more thinking about Rousseau, like, leaving all his yeah. orphan babies on the church steps, <laughs> <laughs> one after the other. Um, yeah, you know, women, totally irrational. Need, uh, need an education to learn how to be just a wife. That was a joke. Well, but. the only reason, other, the only reason I'm <laughs> no saying this, the only reason I'm still, I'm, I'm just trying to think. I'm know. not sure how we got to this, so I'm well, just this is me violating the political theory thing, so I, I feel bad. That's it's a rule that you my put fault. for yourself. My fault. Yeah. It's my fault. I know, I know, I know. Well, Reluctant three political theorists. theorists, we have, it's hard, you know, it's very difficult to, to avoid it, you know? Uh, I can't remember now. It's like John and I, I was saying this to John uh, offline, but it might have made it into an episode where I was like, we like to pretend that the first hour of these episodes is like not us doing political theory, except it's <laughs> all us doing political theory. Yeah. We just don't call it the cave. <laughs> right. By having a section called the cave, it makes it seem like the rest is not bad, right? So very clever. I mean, Exactly. Yeah, I assume you've been doing that. Not that I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else? Any anything else anyone wants to pick up about the Arcadi Nina uh, conversation? Let's go to Stan and Nina. Let's go to Stan and Nina. Wait, now I remember what I was going to say. So what I was going to say is, you, you guys have commented before about how Stan is alternately good at the job and bad at the job. Yeah. It's not some accident that he's terrible at the job whenever Nina's in the frame totally. and totally. he's suddenly very good at it most of the rest of the time. Yeah. Right. Well, so and like, like this episode gets a really good version of that where Stan is good at his job when he's like, oh, yeah, just like leave him in a room for a little bit when we told him he was going to get out. And he'll yep. definitely like be yelling at the glass. And then the end of the episode, Gad is like, by the way, that dude did start yelling at the glass. Like, who would have thought? <laughs> you called it. Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, she's kryptonite for him, man. She really yeah. is, which is like. But then that raised the question of, OK, look, he's this high level, super trained FBI agent, right? You put a little trim in front of the guy and he suddenly can't do his job at all anymore. It's like, it doesn't really, doesn't really like, it's hard to say he's still good at the job. Right? Agreed. You're supposed to be ready not to fall for that obvious honeypot, right? Yeah. But I think the thing with Stan, which is like what makes his falling for the honeypot interesting is that it's always already connected to the like four years of being in, like embedded in the white supremacist community because like it's he can't separate the the like Nina and emotions bullshit of it all from the job of it all because he hasn't been separating those things for the last X amount of years while he was like embedded. So I think it's like he is good at his job when his job is to fall for the honeypot. <laughs> <laughs> or in like the parlance of like the meme of our time, men would literally rather be terrible FBI agents than go to therapy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, because like I think you're right, Danielle, and that one of the like the dynamics is that Stan just has no emotional intelligence, no self-knowledge, no self-reflection or whatever, which in fact is like one of the reasons one of the things that drives apart him and Sandy. And that only becomes more and more explicitly thematized over subsequent seasons, that that is the, one of the key differences that kept Stan, uh, Standy, uh, that kept Stan, Stan and Sandy apart from one another. And like, again, right. I, I know, I think I've made this point before and I know that it's like Arcadi fanboy territory, but like Arcadi is not 
thrown off by the fact that Nina is a conventionally attractive woman, yeah. right? Like Arcadi just relates to her professionally, like yeah. both before and after he knows the truth of what had happened to her and how Stan had recruited her and all of that. And Arcadi just is <clears throat> going about like, this is a professional situation and I am remain a mostly competent resident uh, KGB resident before and after that vis-a-vis Nina. Does Arcadi have any romantic entanglements as the seasons go on? Oh, Arcadi. Yeah. Arcadi is tight. Okay. It's tight. <laughs> That's why we, one of the reasons why me and, me and the yeah. other John love Arcadi, right? All the John one of the reasons I love Arcadi. What? What are you talking about? There are many reasons to love Arcadi, but I, you know, my sentimental made, uh, self wanted, you know, now that Daniel asked this question makes me wish that he had a love interest. I'm already sorry I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a j- inside joke between me, John, and Sid. But you know. I, <clears throat> right. it was still funny, even though I wasn't on the inside <laughs> yeah, of it. Right, so right. I'll take it. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit more about Nina and Stan before we dig into some segments. So we get two Nina Stan encounters before when he's like, you're out of here, baby. And then after when he's like, sorry, it it didn't work (laughs) out. Whoops. (laughs) Sorry. Oops, I was bad. Workout's a great wording there, right? (laughs) Oops, I was bad at my job again. That, by the way, that line didn't work out is often used in the Sopranos, basically when someone like, but they're talking about like someone accidentally getting like chopped in half and like killed. Like, you know, it just didn't work. didn't work out. You know, sorry. It didn't work out. Like, what are you going like, to do? What are you going to do? Like, we're trying to meet for coffee or something. It didn't work out, you know? Yeah. And the first of those is the closest I think Nina has come to cracking or to yeah. like losing her facade or dropping her facade or the way that she is in fact playing Stan since the first or second encounter between the two of them. And then I mean, she has to like turn away from him because this is right after yeah. she hears from Arcadi that they're going to give her the chance to try to be double or triple agent to turn Stan so on and so forth. And Stan tells her this news and she's like, just like that. And then has to turn away and utter the, the most tragic, my God, um, that anyone has ever voiced in a television show. And just like the, the, the depth of this is maybe in a different universe, not bad news, but it's the worst possible news for her to receive at this precise time. I agree one that this is the closest at least so far that Nina has come to, to breaking. It's so bittersweet because it's the thing that she has wanted literally until the last episode. Right. Mm -hmm. And now she can no longer want it because wanting it will get her killed. And, and yet there's still a kind of like, is this going to work out? Like, is this, is this happening right now? Like, are they going to take me to California? Like unclear. Right. And then, I just didn't work out. It just <laughs> look, it didn't work out. You know, sometimes, you know, I, I, work some out. lose some. Yeah. I couldn't help. Get them next time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help but feel like one relief, obviously, that it didn't work out, but also that Nina was half to, half expecting it not to work out because, like, one, nothing ever works out for her, 
And mm-hmm. two, she put the wheels in motion so that it wouldn't work out. <laughs> right? So, like, together. And because she knows that Stan is bad at his job. <laughs> exactly. 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 So Why doesn't Stan... I, see, I'm, it's a little unconvincing that Stan didn't, at that point, even doesn't suspect her. You know, it's weird. He's blind. He's blind to her. Yeah. Like, she he, left the apartment. He told her, wait here, stay here. It's he doesn't great. know that. He doesn't know, know that. that. He didn't know, know that. Because right. right. with regard to Nina, he's bad at his job. All right, I mean, cut it's that. a cut, similar... Cut that, cut that. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's staying. Cut, cut that we... mistake. Cut that mistake. <laughs> uh, we're leaving that in. <laughs> and there's this parallel, right, between Stan after the first episode is not is not suspicious to what Philip and Elizabeth are doing and instead just becomes best friends and somebody that Philip can rely on or whatever. And so he's totally unable to see it, think critically there and totally unable to think critically about Nina. Well, let me suggest one last thing about this is staying good or bad at the job thing. I think you guys should put a pin in that and follow this question over time across the series and decide because it will, it will never not be interesting. Yeah, You'll correct. always be able to debate it. And I don't remember, because I don't remember the show after this season I watched it so many years ago, whether he does, in fact, get better or worse in his job over time. That would be cool to revisit that season two, season three. In fact, in each one of my return visits, we can revisit it if you want. Love it. John, put I it in the Google idea. Doc. <laughs> Check in on Stan's progress. Better at the job, question mark, or worse? Still bad? Still fall for pot. Still fall for <laughs> And, of course... Nina ends up comforting Stan in that second scene for the two of them yeah. because that is what Stan expects. And Nina is able to continue to maintain her spy role and spy craft, even when Stan is his typical messy self. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. Should we get into some segments? hundred um, percent. We're very excited, John, for Bar of Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s, which is unremembered for Danielle and I, but we have somebody who remembers the 80s. Right. If I, if I have it correct, John, you spent most of the 80s in the gold gyms of the greater New Jersey <laughs> metro area getting swole with your bros. I'm like, that correct. I'm like, I grew up in the burning red hot center of the eighties. Right. So this show really, I mean, if you want to talk about it, right. You ever watch this show, red Oaks, by the way, with Paul Reiser, it's not a really good show, but it takes place. No, but I do know court. Paul Reiser, my two dads. <laughs> it takes tennis courts and eighties and so on. Right. So you've got the Corvettes, you got the Trans Ams, you got the love clothing, the, la- the bad leather jackets, the uh, music, you know, I love uh, it. Gold's gym of it all, you know, was was uh, probably four dollars a month. I just want to say that there is still there is still a Gold's gym in East Northport where I am from on Long Island, of course. (laughs) You have at that kind of a Gold's gym in in Paramus, New Jersey, in 1986. You've got a guy there, you know, with the big weight belt, big weight belt on, jeans, weight belt. Claiming to be the sit-up champion of the world, right? Yeah. Now, why that guy? If you really were that guy, why would you go to a gold gym for $6 a month <laughs> in Jersey? Never really – you don't really get to that in a conversation, really, right? No, but, you know, um, you have claim to it, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who can challenge you? The phones, the – you know, just seeing – it just reminds me of being that that set and, you know, what am I? Okay, so we determined I'm 11 or 12, I guess, at this Right for this particular yeah, we're, season, we're spring nineteen eighty one. Okay, for so I'm, I'm eleven. Moment. Let's say right. Okay, um, you know, so not yet going to Gold's Gym. So I am. Like no, no, five. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm negative two. <laughs> 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 okay, wait. So I have a question. 
usually John asks this question, but I'm going to ask you, do you know what the reference borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered 80s? Do you know what that's a reference to? No, it's like some hipster thing in the mid-aughts. So there's 0%. Ch- As John, John <laughs> probably accurately predicted, again, I didn't listen to it, but I'm assuming he predicted I would not be able to guess it. I mean, True. I have no idea. I feel like even though we are <clears throat> what seems like 14 or 15 years apart in age, I think our vibe is the the same disdain for hipster bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't, doesn't register with me. No, no, thank you. Let's put it this way. I, for 14 years, I played, uh, every Sunday, I played in the co-ed softball league in Williamsburg at Uh, the Park. I'm jealous. My nickname on this team was the Banker. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So you got to fucking, in that culture, you've got to earn that kind of nickname, right? Listen, I'll take it. I would take that nickname in a second. The Banker. I know, that would really be, in any other, in any other world, that would be so insulting to call me that, but I fucking love being called that there. Maybe I find a softball league up here. It's a great idea. Or yeah. a kickball league. Both are good ideas. Okay, so you don't know what it means, neither do I. Don't I don't know what it means. Um, We're no, still- I think some of our season two guests are going to be our most likely candidates. Okay. All right. Yeah. I believe it. They seem more hipster friendly than either John or I, so. <laughs> yeah. So, like- actually, I'll, I'll ask John this. Emily Crandall, we think we'll know this, Yes. Good, much higher chance than anybody else you've had on the show so far. Yeah, right? absolutely. Oh, you mean she, my? She, you mean my? She doesn't know it. I don't know if anyone's going to know it. You do know you mean, mean my sister, who's ten years younger than me, didn't get it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I know about the '80s themselves, but not this meta fucking you know hipster t- 2004. But why the fuck would I know that, man? You know, we'll take not, it. You're not that far off in your year, there, John Keller, of 2004, <laughs> uh, for this reference. Okay. But, uh, I want to start this one. Yes. The first thing that jumped out at me as like insane 80s is Martha's garter when Clark is aggressively going down on her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have notes on that, but I'll save that for glass. Yeah, we'll come back to that. But the garter, garters to me are like so like stereotypically 80s weddings. <laughs> Like that garter belt is not attached to anything. It's just on her leg. I have been at weddings in the 2010s among like not among people my age where there's like the garter toss into the audience. Oh, same. I was at one, but it was in Montreal like five years ago. So I feel like that's mostly the 80s. <laughs> yeah, Montreal is basically it's like 15, 20 years behind us. Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. 100%. Yeah, totally. They lost their baseball team and now they're also still in the 80s. Yeah. But the garter belt was like hyper 80s for me. Um, I think we've got some thoughts on the cars. <laughs> Just that there are a lot of eighties cars. I'm not I'm not a car guy, as the audience probably <laughs> could have guessed. Audience. But- the car is just at audience. Is our audience? John's here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's a circularity to this. I'm talking about okay. is for my own benefit only. Later, <laughs> our John probably could have known that, but there's a lot of cars that just are screaming '80s in this episode. So many oh Lincoln God. Continentals. <laughs> so Philip, 1978 Chevy Nova, right? Of course, he's driving it like fucking Mario Andretti's Formula One. But John is a car guy, apparently. (laughs) I'm sure Chevy Novas can do that, right? I mean, you know, whatever. The the ring, the like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're designed to do that, right? 
right? Um, uh, but they, they, they pull it into that garage and they swap it for a Ford LTD, right? Which is another two hilarious. They were pushing this nostalgia for the 80s thing to the maximum by making those two the cars plus the Lincoln Continentals. You've got that triad. Yeah. It's, it's perfect. It's perfect. absolutely perfect. You know, I said this to both of you before we started recording, but the one thing that I was surprised about is the car that they broke into the LTD. You said, yeah, amazing. Um, you know what that stands for, by the way? I do not. John, take a guess. No idea. What, what's, what, what's an LTD in a car? It's it's not a specific make. It's Limited? Just a, close. What, what's Limited. another L word? I don't know. I'm not License. good at this. To drive. <laughs> <laughs> what do people like to feel when they're in a car? You know? Luxury? Luxury, correct. The first word is luxury. T, oh, you're not going to get T. No way. Transportation? Tr- no. <laughs> trim. Luxury trim and D. Luxury trim. Decal. And dashboard. Decor. <laughs> luxury trim decor, baby. So you've got the 78 Chevy Nova driving it like Mario Andretti. You've got tw- 22 Lincoln Continentals that have the souped up special fucking yeah. engine. But, but the Chevy Nova schools all of them, right? Destroys them. Yeah, destroys yeah. them all, right? You know. On that same road out of Prospect yeah. Park that they've been using all season. <laughs> no, I believe that Philip had race car driving training in Russia, obviously, because car chases are obviously. part of spy work. But. It's, it's on a fucking Lada, right? It's not, it's not a fucking 77 Nova or whatever, right? But I was just surprised that that car, the car that they break into doesn't have one of those, like, push lock things, like the number locks on <laughs> yeah. the outside. My grandfather yeah, yeah, yeah. had a Lincoln Continental in the 80s that we oftentimes drove up to Boston to see my cousins, who I was hanging out with today. Um, they don't listen to this podcast, but maybe my Aunt Mickey will. Um, but I would drive up with my grandfather in the Lincoln Continental. And like the thing I love the most about that car was like, you could unlock it without the keys by just putting in the code on the outside. I wanted cool one thing, of those man. codes. That was a cool thing. Maybe that's an 85 on kind of thing. But the, 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 one, the Chevy Nova though is really, that's really putting it like, that is like a Cheech and Chong car. <laughs> that's a big Lebowski car. I mean, that's nice. really making that yeah. statement very boldly by making it that, you know, Nice. That car and that kind of, you know, right. And then him driving it that way. And then, and that's perfect for Philip's disguise, actually. Like, <laughs> very much giving me those vibes. Yeah, that's true. Now that you've given me some additional context, John. That's totally true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be like a 70s porn film or this Americans, basically. Like, a, you know. Or both. Or both, right. A porn we film with a car chase, yeah. In this episode, a lot of hats on FBI men I that didn't. are like ugly statement hats. I did I would say. not catch this at all. <laughs> all right. I just, I do just like to point anybody to the moment when they're all in like the driveway of the Weinberger house. And I want you to press pause on whatever device you're watching and count how many uh, ill-advised hats are being worn when they're, at that particular moment. When they're all on the driveway, in in the repairman van, whatever, and Elizabeth walking by does not see all of the extra Lincoln Continentals and people. Because we don't know how far away the, like, recording car that Elizabeth is going to is, correct? Like, they never, they're not like, oh, it's, it, you know, it has to be within six blocks. Or it whatever. can't be that far. It's the 80s. <laughs> right. Fair. 
Fair. It's gotta be on the block somewhere. It's gotta really be close. on and yeah. they're they're like at the Weinbergers and then also like watching Elizabeth walk up. So Yeah. Yeah, so it's a couple blocks. Uh John, did you have some music stuff for us? Yes. One of the classic Americans music moments at the end of this episode, we get a oh. lovely Americans montage to Peter Gabriel's Games Without Frontiers. Oh yeah. Which is all about like that's very you know so that I looked up that song came out in uh, late 1980 so the timing's right it's about like the dangers of of impending nuclear war uh, it's about you know who understands who it's about what if we all could just get along it's just you know thematically it's it, it works for the Americans and it's just uh, it's a banger. I mean I have definitely been in a car with all the windows rolled down. Smoking something that was probably mostly pine needles and oak leaves. (laughs) Building out that song in 1987, definitely 100% chance that happened. Yeah. We'll take it. Uh, It's such a banger. song. I I assume, I thought that was a Genesis song, but it is just a Peter Gabriel song. Just Peter Gabriel, right. Yeah. um, 1980, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is why we need uh, somebody who remembers the 80s. But yeah, classic needle drop. I love that. And I actually, so I'm without a phone right now. My phone is waiting on a part to be fixed. So I have to listen to the radio the, when I'm driving it. around now. Uh, um, nice. which is not ideal. You could listen to but, baseball, but no, pass. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I don't think we get baseball in Plattsburgh, New York. Like I don't know where you know. You we're far away. do. Okay, fair enough. Uh, regardless, <laughs> games with games without frontiers came on the radio this week. Oh, and I'm that's like, awesome. Oh, I know this is in the Americans at some point. Little did I know that three days later. I'd be talking about this wonderful song with two of my best friends. What a nice full circle moment. Oh, that's love great. That. Um, let's go into minor character of the week and let's turn it over to our guest, John Keller to, uh, to give us that minor character of the week. Well, this was tough, you know, you have to really <laughs> strain, but you know, you've got to go with the Russian doctor. Uh, who, who pulls the bullet out of Elizabeth's fucking gallbladder? Yep. And then there's a totally nonchalant face afterwards, Big like, eh, seen better, seen worse, you know, it's out. Anyway, so uh, good luck, honey, all right? Um, the actor's name is Zenon Zaluniich, which is a fantastic name, a great, great character actor. And again, that face he makes is like he just put a new carburetor in a car. It's like, you know, he basically saved her life, right? Oh my god! Yeah, it's fantastic. So you know, I I love uh, this because it allows me to talk about another wild moment in this episode before they get to the doctor. I agree is definitely the minor character of the week because one, he saves Elizabeth, and also all of the things you mentioned. (laughs) But also the way that Philip knows that Elizabeth that something is wrong is Elizabeth starts to be nice. <laughs> he's like, wait a minute. Let, he, she's like, she's like, let's go to that lovely uh, hotel. And he's like, oh my god, what's wrong with you? Can still salvage this trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> totally right. Totally true. Hundred percent. So wow. it's really funny. Brilliant point. Absolutely right. <sighs> I think, unless we have more to say about the KGB doctor, secret KGB doctor. It's time to move on to Daniel Dossier. And this is a big moment for Daniel Dossier for many reasons. This is the end of season one. We get some clarity on some Dan- Daniel Dossier, you know, key elements, key yeah. files within. So, so John, unless you have anything you want to set up Daniel Dossier with, I think we just turn it to Danielle. Let's turn to Danielle. Okay. So first of all, in my notes, I have pages suspicious in like 
very large letters and exclamation points. And so I think like this both undercuts, but also semi confirms something that I was, I have been uh, pushing in the dossier until now, which is I have been saying that Paige knows what's up. And I think what we get is like, maybe Paige doesn't know what's up, but she is, she knows something is up. She doesn't know what's up, but she knows something is up. She goes down into that, <laughs> into that laundry room. And I, for one, was surprised that there was folded laundry down there. <laughs> like, <laughs> Elizabeth Spycraft is on point. Even know, in a moment of crisis, she guaranteed yeah. that there would be folded laundry. She went back there. downstairs and refolded the laundry to make sure that if that <laughs> moment ever happened, that the laundry would be folded. Because yeah. she knows her daughter is going to go check sometime. On several parts of the laundry room, right? On top of the washer, on top of the dryer, on top of the, like, whatever else was in, in there. In front of like, the, in front of the secret cabinet. <laughs> yeah, in front of the secret cabinet. And Paige checks every pile to be like, are these actually closed? <laughs> are these actually folded? <laughs> Not like a department store that's like got foam behind the, the clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the the I mean this is I think another confirms a Daniel Dossier element, but like the shoddiness of the kids are not allowed to wake up the parents I, in the middle of the night. I Which, couldn't <laughs> with that. I that's the thing. Like you know, you're not allowed to go into mom's room. Okay, if my parents ever said that to me, first of all, my the house, my parents' house doesn't have a ton of doors, but like, like I don't think my parents' bedroom door has ever been locked, at least like not in my own consciousness. But like, if my mom and dad were like, you're not allowed to come into our bed ever or wake us up, like, what? We would have, we would have like revolted. <laughs> so the page thing is funny, by the way. So I should tell you guys. My buddy Dan, I told him I'm going on this podcast, whatever, we're going to talk about this. Is the Dan we both know? No, different Dan. The, the, okay. Which Dan do we both know? Former grad center uh, In Ohio? superstar. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Another friend Dan I grew up with loves this show, too. I said, oh, I'm going on this podcast. What about the Americans? It's going to be fun. So we'll whatever. have two listeners. I was blah. just going to say yeah. the same thing. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about that, but, you know, <laughs> possibility, right? However, at least once a week, he, te- he sends me a text as a joke saying, did you talk to Paige? What does Paige know? <laughs> because, and again, I know I don't want to give any spoilers away because, you know, Danielle's seen the show, but this is not a spoiler. But basically, something like that line is said a thousand times in this fucking show, right? Talk to Paige? What does Paige know? <laughs> talk to Paige? I love like, it. Over and over and over again. Like the, I love it. The, I'm suspicious yeah, of Paige. So and and Paige should be suspicious. I mean, Elizabeth is like still in her like clothing that she was in throughout the day in the middle of the night, folding laundry in the basement. Like even if Paige had not been suspicious beforehand, what she was, even if less consciously, obviously she's going to go snoop around then and is smart enough to be like, I have to get my homework. So she's also internalized some of the. You know, how do I get out of situations to go do spy things? Did, did you talk to Paige? <laughs> what, does Paige what does Paige know? Yeah, I grilled her while she was on the stairs <laughs> trying to get a glass of water. Like, let this girl live. <laughs> I, I literally get a, get a text a week from this guy saying, like, totally random. It's funny, like, totally random thing, right? Because it, it said so much. And then Paige doesn't get the glass of water. Elizabeth is just like, go back upstairs. No water for you. Exactly. exactly. She handles it, though. She handles it. 
Right. Okay, John, you have in the notes wish casting Elizabeth in a fighter jet. Was that something I said? <laughs> yes, that, you told me that like two weeks ago. Oh, yes. Because we, we were talking right after you watched this episode for the first time. Yeah, I mean, like, I... I do want Elizabeth in a fighter jet. Like I want some, like, <laughs> I want, I want the meeting with the Colonel not to happen on a bench. I want it to happen like in a, like Elizabeth in a fighter jet. But I hear something that I'm thinking about. Paige is suspicious. She goes down to check right now. Her mom is visiting an aunt. Do the kids know that there's a great aunt? Like, this will be discussed, I think, immediately, like within the first couple minutes of season two, episode one. Which I yeah, really I'm had to stop myself from watching. I'm not liberty to comment on this point, obviously. <laughs> so. so they're just setting themselves up. But it's Philip. Philip is a shoddier spy than, than Elizabeth is. <laughs> Let's be real. All right. So I think that it's come to a very important point of this episode of Not Quite Great Books. And this is one of two, yes, two special segments that are specific to our cherished guest, John Keller. So John Keller, um, I, you've been briefed that we are going to have Lev Gorn story time. There are many reasons why Arkady Ivanovich is one of my favorite characters and your favorite characters and a character that Danielle likes, but maybe does not I don't, stand I don't to quite hate the him. same extent. <laughs> yeah, we're we're not, working on her. We're working on her. Yeah, we're working on it. And I think Danielle will be even more charmed by Arkady Ivanovich after Lev Gorn story time. So the floor is yours, John. Well, you know, living in New York City, I mean... You lead a very luxurious life, yeah, yes. Yes. I mean, it, it kind of blows running into celebrities because, you know, whatever. Who cares? It's New York. But if you're going to run into a celebrity, you want it to be Lev Gorn or somebody like it at his level of fame where he's really happy to be recognized because, yeah. <laughs> like, nobody in that gym realizes who that is because, although we love the show, think about how few people actually watch The Americans, like, ratings-wise. And it's like critics loved it. And it was not like a, you know, big smash hit. But so, John, you mentioned you mentioned a gym. Can you like take us a couple steps back and tell us about this gym that is part of your luxurious celebrity, i.e., Lev Gorn meeting life? So, turns out Lev Gorn works out at the gym I used to go to before COVID, which is now out of business, right? <laughs> and this trainer guy who I used to talk to is a funny guy. There said, "You recognize who that is, right?" And I'm like, "I didn't, I didn't put it together because." He's much like smaller in real life. Like he must have like some um, prosthetics or something on the show because he's like kind of he's a pretty small guy in reality, right? Huh. Actually, yeah. he's a little portly as Arcadi, right? Yes. Just a so, little bit, yeah. So definitely he did, not looking anything like that. So I didn't realize who that was, and I, I didn't, you know, and I didn't watch a show in a while. Whatever. He's like, you like the Americans, and I'm like, oh fuck, yeah, 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 holy shit! And then at one point, you know. Uh, I went up to him and I said, listen, I don't want to bother you, but I'm a gigantic fan. He was like super friendly and Aww. super into it, you know, because again, he's not that famous. It's like, you know, he's famous enough that, well, let's put it this way. It's a $70 a month gym. Okay, <laughs> People that are really rich actors work out at $770 a month gyms, not $70 a month gyms. So the fact that Lev Gorn went to, like, do you guys know what New York Health and Racket is in the yes. like, world of, okay. I lived on the Upper East so, Side, my friend. In 1974, when it started, John McEnroe was doing the ads, and it was the classy, fancy yeah. gym. But by 2017, it's like an you know, 84 Cadillac Eldorado. You know it's, what I mean? Like not the people not, I know that go yeah. to New York Health and Racket are like the 
old dudes at my friend's shul. Exactly. <laughs> like, right. And, and they're and, right. Exactly. And, and so Lev Gorn does exactly. that too, which is fucking <laughs> funny. Of like, of all the of all the people that run into there, right? Like, all you the know, gin joints. My wife goes to Equinox, whatever. It's fucking yeah. Anderson Cooper's there. All this shit. And like, whatever. Who cares, right? So obviously, he wasn't getting paid that much because you know he's working out at uh uh. HRC. So super friendly guy, super nice. I spotted him a few times on the bench and stuff. And, you know, he's just uh, really friendly. He, but he's funny. He would kvetch, though. He'd be like, oh, I can only get rolls for Russians. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine why that's the case. <laughs> you know? He says in his thick Russian. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, it's funny. His accent, he's lived in the U.S. probably a long time at this point. So he definitely has an accent, but it's not strong. And it yeah. doesn't sound like... He probably hams it up extra. Yeah. You know, like, when he, yeah, for his scene with Claudia, right? When narcotic, yeah. right, exactly. But yeah, it's a totally positive story. Maybe, you know, usually you run into a celebrity that you love and it doesn't go well and you like, like, you never want to run into anybody you really like that much because the chance of it going badly is very high and then you're not going to like them as much, especially if they're a musician. True? <laughs> I yeah. It sounds like you meet more. I'm actually both of you meet more celebrities. No, true or false though. No right? comment. Um, okay. so, no comment. <laughs> should I tell the second part? Or yes, tell the second part. So I, I just want to. I want to emphasize. I think your theory that he's exactly the right level of celebrity one would want to meet is correct. I yeah. imagine that like if you were at the same gym as Matthew Reese. Right, like who is no. you know a level of fame or several levels of fame above? Wouldn't, like, wouldn't hey. even talk to him. Yeah, wouldn't exactly. Him. No way. Yeah. So I think that I think that like that's the sweet spot is a is a good well observed, well observed. I asked this trainer guy first, as I'm such a huge fan of the show. Is it okay if I? What do you think? And he's like, definitely, he's totally cool. Like he doesn't get wrecked. He walks around the street. If you're if you're more famous than him, people will bother you. He, he doesn't. Nobody knows who that is on the street because he. No one's right? sending in Lev Gorn to Dumois. <laughs> how much is his how much is his cameo that's what I sh we should have looked up before this fucking show right yeah, well there's a part two to the story so we might be able to look this up All continue right, so, you can look that up anyway so I talked to him a couple times you know over the course of a year when he's working out there it's cool he's Arcadi I tell John about it he thinks it's funny or whatever he thinks it's, not everybody even knows who you can't really tell that story to everybody. You have to be a fan yeah. of that show and realize who that is. And that's a couple steps. John knew right away who it was. He's like, Oh my God, that's great. It's fantastic. Right. Um, so one time he tells me that he was going to get on this show called billions. Which, uh, fucking, know, billions. Fucking, fucking Schiller, man. Okay. Let me tell you this, Amy, if you're listening. Okay. He's not. You're way, <laughs> Amy's going to listen to this episode. I, oh, think. Yeah, I yeah. saw her yeah. yesterday. Stop. Amy, you're way off. <laughs> That's not a good show, okay? That is not a good show. Agreed. Anyway, oh, thank there God. was so the Gorn tells me, okay, I'm up. For, I was up for this big role. They have the, there's a Russian gangster character on Billions, and I'm up for it. And he's all excited. Okay. Week later, I'm like, you know, hey, I don't want to say like I don't want to jinx it. So I'm like, hey, what's up? Blah blah blah. You know, how you doing? Blah blah blah. You know, whatever. Hey, Lev. You know, quick conversation. He goes, oh man. I didn't get the billions thing. And I'm like, really? What happened? He's like, they gave it to fucking John Malkovich. Can you believe that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, of course I can. But yeah, what's funny about that is... There's literally a movie called Being John Malkovich. There's not a movie called Being Left Gorn. <laughs> right, right. There should be. <laughs> right. All right. So when, well, when not quite great books hits it really big and we can get fund a small Spotify independent cash. film... We're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to get John Keller on I want to narrate it. I want to narrate it. And we're going to produce... 
being left I'm for. in. You know who, who else we could bring in as a producer? Andy Greenwald. I bet he loves Left Corn, too. Fucking Greenwald, exactly. Yes. <laughs> he loves totally. the Americans. I bet he loves Left Totally. Gorn. No, he would definitely. You tell me Andy Greenwald would say, no, I don't want to do a Lev Gorn fucking show. Of course <laughs> but the, the funny part of the story is Lev Gorn is a great Russian, okay? Yeah. John Malkovich literally has the worst Russian accent on the planet, <laughs> right? Literally, it's terrible, right? Yes. I mean, I have not and likely will not watch Billions. Nope. But I can only assume that whatever Malkovich's character's role on the show, it would have been better with, like, clearly, as we have seen in this first season, the Americans, Lev Gorn can play hammy, you know, having a good time, whatever. But he's like, got jokes. With, he does have jokes, but he's not a, like, self-caricature. No. Or is not going to caricature his character in the way that Malkovich Ma- is. And, and I know that John... John dislikes Malkovich more than I do. This is one of our funny. No, Malkovich is Russian. No, Malkovich is Russian. I don't like. I no, like but him. See, you're you're out on New Pope for Malkovich reasons, and I oh, think yeah, I think yeah, New yeah. Pope is still good. Oh, I forgot about. I mean, that. I'm yeah, out yeah, on yeah, New yeah. Pope because it's not a Jude Law vehicle. <laughs> Yeah, John kept insisting that was as good as the first season. No, not as good. Yeah, right, anywhere near, but it's nowhere near as good. I mean, it's very far, very inferior. Wait, I mean, if you would have stuck to the last few episodes, you would uh, you change your tune. Anyway, the movie Rounders. Okay, Rounders <laughs> is where the bad Malkovich Russian act. That have you seen this film? Either of you guys? Yeah, so you know yeah what I'm but like okay. in 1996. So you'll admit, John, that Russian's ter- accent is horrific in that movie. Yes, right? correct. Okay, fine. That's all I want. I don't, I don't care yeah. what you think about Malkovich. I just want to say that Lev Gorin got robbed. It's unfair yes. they gave it to Malkovich. And justice it been, for Lev. Like, yeah. I'm here. Oh, justice for Lev, 100%. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look. Protect Lev Gorin at all costs. Even though, once again, Schiller's totally wrong and Billion sucks, it would have been better with Lev Gorin instead of John Malkovich. And that's all I'd like to say about that. <laughs> Lev Gorin's story time was everything I wanted it to uh, be. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was heartbreaking. He said it. My agent called me up and told me, and I had to Aww. listen. It was heartbreaking. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> then he's like, you know, he's funny. He's like, you know, it's Malkovich. What are you going to do? Like, I'm not upset. Like, I, I wasn't like, what do you mean? That's crazy. <laughs> fuck that. You know, he like, he's like, you know, he understands his position in the business. They went in a different direction. You know? <laughs> exactly. They went in a different direction. Okay. Should we go in a different direction to Gloss? Oh. <laughs> in Gloss, I, there's actually probably a lot, uh, a lot to talk about in Gloss. Yeah. So let's just get into it. And I think in honor of Loveborn story time, we talked about it briefly earlier, but we should mention again, Arkady sending the cars out oh from God. the cage, from the Soviet embassy garage. Waving his, ar- waving his arm. Yeah. Like really well. Divide, 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 right? Just and just go, like go, go. painting a huge sign on all yeah. of these cars. It's the Russian equivalent of a third base coach windmilling the runner around. <laughs> yes, yes. That's what he was doing. Go, 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 right? Yeah. Oh, oh my yes. God. And like, again, Arkady as a character is, is great because as somebody asks him, they've never tried this before. He's like, we're in a crisis. I have to invent this totally new tactic. So I'm going to spray paint like I've never spray painted before, quite literally, on these cars and yell at them to divide, divide, yeah. divide. Uh, out the at the garage. Does that mean so, go? What does that mean? That means yeah, go. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go. Yeah. Um, you know, once again, I'm not going to be able to get you Lev Gorn for the show. Um, 
<laughs> don't sell yourself short. You might have to go back to, oh, I guess it's closed now, so you don't know. I know John that. talked Danielle into letting me on the show. I'm saying, listen, there's a 2% chance this guy can get us Gorn for the next season. So <laughs> put up with his old man jokes and his boomer shit and just, you know, whatever. I just <laughs> want to say, I'll, I'll, we have a very long list of people yeah. we want as guests, and you yeah. have always been at the top of yeah. that list. Yeah, that's true. That's right. true. No and even though fun. your folder says UI on the top of it, don't, 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 don't feel offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay what about um just we talked to us also a little bit about this before but the chase scene just like the sheer mechanics of it are wild but the thing that is like the most wild to me is that none of the fbi agents are like huh, there's an open garage. Should we check the open garage that that this car we're chasing that we can't find, like maybe went into the garage that we all just drove by? It's a great point. It's a great point. Although like, it's not as if the FBI had covered itself in car chase glory up to that point. Yeah. Witness <laughs> Philip, out, Philip ramming through them and then outrunning them in the beat up Chevy Nova or whatever, or beat up by the time he had the taillights are cars. like rattling yeah. behind him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, great moves by Philip. And I think that that for me raised an important question of which of the three of us would we most want to be driving the getaway car in that situation? It's not me. I think it's between the two it's of you. It's not so. me. Right, I, so my John, sisters, you're the winner. I <laughs> okay. I'm in trouble. If that's the case. I <laughs> maybe I should. Maybe I'm the one then. I yeah, I would gonna, trust yeah, you. you. I would trust you, John. It is a running joke with my sisters that like we went to this wedding that was out east, and we ended up having a lot of different cars. So. I was driving home in my car and Becky and Tori were driving home in Tori's car. And I left 20 minutes before them and they passed me on the LIE. <laughs> they are still today. I got a text being like, remember that time we passed you on the LIE when you left 20 minutes before us? Like, th- believe me, it's not me. Which of the Hanley sisters would be most one driving the car? Tori. Tori, Tori does likes to do what she says. She likes to do crimes, which is Tori code word for on the New Jersey Turnpike when it's split, driving in the truck side and driving very fast. Sounds like the winner of this competition. Yeah. yeah. I think if any of the three of us are driving that getaway car, basically. We're fucked. We're gonna, yeah, we're <laughs> fucked. Man. We're going we're gonna to end up, you know... Splayed out on the divider, basically. You know? <laughs> I, I think. I think we're, it's really, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're haggling over a really insignificant difference here. Think, yeah. Ultimately, right. We need the Hanley sisters. We need to tap in because yeah. all three of the other ones are way better at, for this than any of us. I bu- I buy that. So we haven't talked much about the opening scene except oh my for God. a brief Danielle oh, mention. Yeah. Danielle, Clark, to refer back to previous conversations, now is actually good at sex and not just like oh boy. Martha version of good at sex. My notes say, wow, orgasm, wow, Clark. <laughs> like, that was a lot. Well, I mean, like, I think we should give Clark slash Philip credit for like being a cishet dude in the 80s giving oral. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like not needing 
like anything reciprocated after that's over, right? So like, and instead he puts his glasses on within half a second yeah, glasses of on. orgasm, so that now Martha can no longer see it's a disguise. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that's a great fumbling with the glasses afterwards. <laughs> Fantastic! It's like right back nice to business, touch. right? It's nice. Oh touch. my god! Like, but it's immediate, right? It's immediate. There's no like break, pause, you know, no. anything. It's immediately fumbling for the glasses, right? Yes, it's glasses you know? then cuddling, not cuddling then glasses. Exactly, which is I think that's interesting, right? He needs clarity of vision first to refocus <laughs> himself, right? Because and and he tells know. Martha, I'm sure it's like, well, because that's how I want to be able to see you. Yeah, as some as dumb right? like he has, he has a line. Schmaltzy, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm hesitant to comment about you know uh, pleasures of the flesh, as, as it were. <laughs> I knew you two would laugh because I, again, I'm, I, that line's for Schiller again. We're driving, <laughs> we're driving home from Rachel Brown's wedding, and I made a, I made a remark in the front seat while I'm driving about the pleasures of the flesh. I said that line, and she goes. Who are you, St. Augustine? <laughs> I love it. I'm that was in. great. I'm on board. It's like, pleasures of the flesh? Who are you, St. Augustine? <laughs> anyway. You know, uh, I know crazy. I know we've got some faith issues going on, but actually you might be the most of all of my friends, the most Augustine-like, John. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a light, it's a light bench, my friend. <laughs> a light bracket, light bench. Use whatever metaphor you want. <laughs> Fun fact, the first full lecture I ever gave in Hebrew was on Augustine's um, Damn. Uh, City of God. It was tough. That's an accomplishment. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That, that's an accomplishment in one's first language. Yeah. yeah I mean, Jesus. I, I usually skip over him in my classes. Oh, I, uh, same. I've no. taught St. Augustine literally one day right. cumulative of my one class session throughout my entire however many years of teaching. Right. I definitely tried it once or twice, and then, you know, once was, was clear, once was enough, and then, of course, I tried again. And So know, in in... Israel, the last year I was there, I was, I was TAing for like the equivalent of ancient political thought, but the way the professor taught it was like Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas. And oh, that wow. was actually an incredibly effective way to That's good, learn yeah. those things. That's really good. But, you know, we'll get into more political theory stuff in the cave. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> um, should we talk a little bit about Stan and Sandy? I was myself just like... It just like hurt my heart how this scene unfolded between the two of them. Stan gives Sandy this gift and Sandy's like, no thanks, bro. I'm out. And the thing is that Stan's apology is both entirely off the mark and kind of very sweet and genuine at the same time, which I think speaks to that point, Daniel. Yeah. Uh, it was it was hard to watch though, and like I knew that she wasn't going to accept this gift the minute she starts opening it, and he's like childishly excited about it, which yeah. just makes it harder to watch. Well, back to our early conversation, it's no surprise that Stan's view of how do I fix my marriage that's falling apart is let us get away from here for eight days and go to Cabo or wherever it was. Um, you know, running away from the problems, running away from Nina, clearly running away from the FBI. Like he understands that that is the only way in which he could offer something like genuine partnership to Sandy. I mean, marriage in general does not fare too well in the series, I would say, right? It's, it's hard, you know, 
That's right? fair. I mean, it, it seems to be most marriages are are, are really fucked up here. Either, you know, <laughs> are they right? real? Which right. is a question <laughs> right. we can ask about the marriages, and a question we can ask about the intelligence, and a question we can ask about the dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and and in this season in particular, right? There are literally zero successful marriages this season, right? We have Clark and Martha, we have false. Philip and Elizabeth, we have Stan false. and Sandy, right? right? Like those are the yeah. marriages we get. I mean, and you don't show the others, right? You don't, you don't show like is our is Arcadi married? Is like you know, um, or any of the other agents married? Or you know, yeah. they don't, there's none of that. I, there's no other marriage mentioned here, right? Is there? No. No, well, no Weinberger so. a little bit. Weinberger's yeah, wife. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah, we see we see Weinberger's yeah. wife, but never Weinberger. I mean, being married to Cap Weinberger could not have been a picnic. You know what I mean? So I'm, <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that already in the column with the rest of them, right? Even though I don't know yeah. anything about them. That seems totally fair. <laughs> and and <laughs> that's why I love John, right? There's no reason to say that whatsoever, right? No evidence. I have no. I know nothing about this. It's just. I hate no, the guy, like, and I'm saying his marriage sucks, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that seems, so therefore, his marriage sucked, and he's a terrible person. Probably. Correct. That's, that's the <laughs> You agree. Process. You agree with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why would I deny that? Oh, <laughs> um, I shouldn't uh, be surprised. Sand, Sand, Sandy's uh, final line of it's not going <laughs> to fix anything is, again, Sandy has a lot of emotional clarity and will only play that role more and more in subsequent seasons. And like, but it's lines like that where she really brings that to the fore. For how few lines she gets, she's awesome. I mean, she really, we remember everything she says, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, right. Susan Meisner. Great work. Great work. All right. So we get this final near the end. We get this final moment so, of course, there's, like, this argument now between Philip and Claudia about, well, Philip needs to go back to the kids. And Philip's like, no, I'm going to stay with Elizabeth. So what does he do? He calls Stan's household, uh-huh. talks to Stan, and is like, hey, Stan, I know you almost caught my partner uh, earlier, and you have no idea that that's what almost happened. And actually, she got shot, and maybe you were the one that shot her. But you know what? Go take care of my kids for me. So it's just like Stan, the irony of, like, obviously, we get to know what's happening and Stan doesn't. It's just a real extra, like, twist in the knife on the failure (laughs) of this FBI mission is that Stan ends up, like, taking in (laughs) the kids of the KGB illegals for the night uh, as Elizabeth starts to recuperate. It's just, again, like, the... You know, there's, there's, are, there are times in which even if Stan is oftentimes like some, someone that we like to make fun of for being bad at his job vis-a-vis Nina, there are times in which like the extent of his, like the emotional depth of him is like sad in a certain way. And like, this is, I think a moment like that. Stan being bad at his job is a real problem here because if he wasn't as bad as at his job, this is the perfect opportunity to go search the Jennings house. (laughs) Yeah, when they're like, hmm, this thing happened, I was suspicious about them before, and some reason, all of a sudden, some fake great aunt uh, appears out of nowhere that we have to go take care of, take in the kids, like, doesn't trigger any suspicion for him. Yeah, and I will say that, like, some of those pictures really do look like Elizabeth, but, like... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they look like Philip with a wig, but the like the picture without when Elizabeth isn't wearing the glasses, the sketch yeah. looks 
like close to Elizabeth except for the hair, right? I had the same thought when watching this episode. So again, Stan, bad at his job. Yeah. <laughs> we have one more entry. Wait, 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 wait. it's really hard to argue he's good at his job ever when these fucking Russian agents live yeah. next door to like, well, Every week you guys are like, well, is Stan good at his job or not? Let's debate it a while now. You sucked me into this now. Now I'm back for too. They fucking I, live I, next door to the guy. I think the best part of this is that when Amador was alive, he was like, this is how they do it. They fucking move in next to us. <laughs> yeah. And right. then he's at the barbecue <laughs> with them. Right, he diagrams the whole strategy and he still doesn't get it, okay? And we're like, oh, you think that means he's bad at his job or not? Let's, let's debate it later. Well, it's, no, no, it's, both, it's both ends. It's both ends. <laughs> well, wow. 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 Um, never got, I'm never going to recover from that. That's a, um, that's a read if I ever heard one. I've never said that phrase in my life before. It's pretty good. Now I see why you guys like it so much. It's just, it feels good. We don't really know what the fuck you're talking about. You just yeah. say that. And don't have to commit a, to anything. It's a smooth you know? landing. It's a nice smooth landing, right? Just try for always already next time. I get it. Oh, for God. No. Stop. Which Danielle worked in earlier. Yeah. Today. I know. Yes, yeah, she did. I know. I know. Um, it's a great point, John. And also, I think it shows that, like, as a podcast, this kind of works. Because what is a podcast if not debating obvious things to exactly. minute detail? It, it, would be like right. four, it would be like four minutes long if we never entertained things like this. Right? So, but you have to... Suspend suspension of disbelief at some point, right? Correct. Well, we're yeah. on track for I think the longest episode yet, and I think we can I think we can make it. Uh, we have one more glass item, John. What did you think about this moment where Elizabeth? It's like the night before these missions. She goes and she listens to some tape that clearly the KGB had given her of her mother like recording a message to her. And like, it seems to me that this is something Elizabeth has done before in times of emotional crisis or doubt or just purely missing her mom or missing home or missing the Soviet Union or whatever. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a connection to her past, connection to her true identity as she sees it or as she understands it, right? Yeah. The scene wouldn't make sense if it was Philip, right? It makes much more sense if it's her. Mm-hmm. And I also love the fact that the mother says, you know, I hear, I've heard you have children. I feel like they're my children, my grandchildren too. And I know I, I'm never going to meet them, but, you know, it makes me feel good to hear you're doing well and so on, right? And that, and a line about, oh, your husband, like the two of you look so happy or something mm. like that, right? Uh. And, you know, this is while they're still separated at this point. Yeah. I love that scene. I think it's really, because very tender. She's yeah. very sad and crying and stuff. And like, I don't know. I just. And we don't. And, sorry. Go ahead, Danielle. I was just going to say, we don't get a lot of tender Elizabeth. And so right, it was right, nice. Right. It was both nice to get tender Elizabeth and the other, I would say the other tender Elizabeth we get in this episode is when she wakes up and she says in Russian, like, come home. And yeah. so like both of the tender scenes with Elizabeth have are like in Russian. And it's, it's just yes. interesting to think yes. about, like, mm-hmm. I lived in Israel for a long time. And so like lived a lot of my life not in English there. And so it's like interesting to think about what kind of person you become in a, in a language that's not your own, right? Like what kind of persona you have. And of course, Elizabeth has to, has to put on this, this like professional cold face for the sake of the, the mission. But it was like interesting to see that break a couple of times in this episode. I believe that's the first time she has spoken in Russian to Philip. I remember correctly. I think that's right. Um, and also, Carrie Russell, like, the posture she adopts, like, sitting kind of crumpled into herself on yeah. the concrete floor of the laundry Almost room. Almost in that little cubby hole. <laughs> exactly. Like, I think that really just, you know, 
amplify the tenderness and the way that she comported her body in acting that scene. Yeah. So I think that we have come to uh, the cave. So we've come to the political (laughs) theory portion and we are dragging John Keller into the cave with us forcefully. (laughs) Secretly very excited about this, but he'll never admit to it. Uh, absolutely, that's true, hundred percent. Wait, can I say one more gla- glass thing? Yes, now? please. Okay, yeah, so, please. I, so you you guys understand this Gad character, right? It's really difficult yeah. for somebody my age. You know why that is, right? No, you know that. Okay, you know who you know who that actor is for somebody who's my age or older, right? What? No, okay. so we are not your you know age the, or older. Okay, right. Do you know what? But you know a lot of things about what older people think, though. That right? is true. <laughs> um, I know a lot of things in general. So, <laughs> so, do you know what the Waltons is? Oh the yeah, vaguely familiar. It was on oh, from 1972 to 1981. 1972 wow. to 1981. It was uh, about a Virginia mountain family, and fucking that actor Richard Thomas is John Boy Walton. Oh right? no! And every episode yeah, ended yeah, with, yeah. with with, with night, John Boy. <laughs> so, <laughs> anybody who's ever watched that show, I'm sorry, it's imprinted on our brains. Okay, okay. So you're saying it's it's I can't hard for that. it's hard for John Boy Walton to like switch into imperious FBI boss. None of us can see anything but John Boy, right? In, in good night, John Boy. Right? Maybe we should end Even our though- episodes. Thanks, producer Amy, and good <laughs> right. <tonight>, John Boy. <laughs> Even though it was 50 goddamn years ago, and that show was on or whatever, right? Um, it, it's just, you know, I know he's a good actor. He's in lots of stuff, but it's always like, I always see yeah, him yeah, like, yeah. that's John Boy Walton, yeah. you know? Listen, I'm, that you don't, you don't know that. I'm struggling because Matthew Reese played a demon boyfriend on Ooh. Charmed, which is like where I know him from. And so the first like few episodes, I like could right. not, I could only see the demon boyfriend. <laughs> well, That'd be a great disguise for Philip. Kerry Russell has no problem, by the way. The, her shift, no, there's no uh, problem. You want to know why? Because, why? Yeah, why. because why? she doesn't know. have curly hair. <laughs> I'm telling you, it is not tough for me to see Kerry Russell in this episode, who, by the way, is one of my favorite actresses. And I have recently rewatched Felicity. It's mostly a good show until the last season. And she is my like dream fan cast of the uh, like female lead of a time traveler's wife, which is the first episode comes out today and it's not her, but anyway, it's Rose (laughs) Leslie. Who's also very, also great. But Carrie Russell is the perfect character, but she seamlessly fits into this because she has straight hair, which is the the (laughs) largest abomination on this entire show, but it actually works for the character. Anyway, <laughs> I, I agree. All this has been a, a distraction by John to avoid going into the cave. Oh, John, is my theory. get in here. We're in right. the cave. <laughs> let, me, let me just say <laughs> that as reluctant as I am to talk about this section, <laughs> and as opposed as I am philosophically to, to the forcing of this great show into the discourse of political theory, even though I came on the show knowing that's the whole fucking point, <laughs> and, and I'm the only listener, after hearing McMahon talk about Amador as Sartrean, right? In the episode, a few episodes <laughs> yeah, yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like any fucking goddamn thing I say has to be taken seriously, right? One million percent. <laughs> right. Because because of, of McMahon, again, I've played it many times, claiming that Amador is no, a Sartrean. That is, right. that is, people should go check the tapes. That is mm. not at all what I said. I think that sounds right. 
So you mean you mean when you <laughs> you mean you mean when you had that brilliant insight that male philosophers are shit when it comes to fucking gender? That's what basically what, right? just specifically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really brilliant there, John. Wow, I never thought of that before. Gee. Right? Oh um, my god. Okay, so all right. So far, the anyway. game is just okay, you, you. Your, your bona fides of not wanting to do this, John, well established. Yeah, yeah, so we, got it, go we got it. We got it. Anyway, so all I got here, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. All, all I've got here, basically scraping the back recesses of my mind to force this out, is that, you know, uh, the notion of like Hebraic prophecy kind yes. of is maybe apparent here in the roles of the handlers, specifically Claudia. Okay. Right? Who warns repeatedly says, like, we're worried about you slipping away, which is what all the prophets say to the Hebrews when they emerge all the time. Yeah. The prophets come from the same tradition to only speak to their own people, mm-hmm. right? They're not for others or only for Jews, right? And they're always saying that they're wayward yeah. and that they're trying to urge them to return. Maybe you know the Hebrew word for for uh, to make a turn. I used to know this word, but I don't remember it now, though. Shulman loves this word. Anyway, um, like return or like to make a turn, like a, like a turn where you're faced with a choice and you make like a, they make predictions because their predictions come from on high, which is to say God summons them to make these predictions and to relate them to the community. And they're never wrong. Right. Which fucking, uh, Claudia calls it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the people always reject them and never listen to them because nobody wants to hear from a prophet. Right whether it's Hebrew prophet or Al Gore telling us the planet's going <laughs> to melt and people were making fun of him and so on in 1992, et cetera. Right. Very true. Wait, before you go on, can you, can you give, okay. Can you just give a couple of, you don't have to go full into the examples, but who, when you're talking about the Hebrew prophets, like who are you thinking of? Just in case well, our listeners don't know. So you could, you could be really, or one or, of the other. You can talk about this. them all. Cause they a hundred percent, this is a genre of literature in okay. the Bible. It's called the books of prophets. And they're the major prophets, not the minor prophets, right? Yeah. Um, basically. And they're all doing this rough activity roughly the same, although each one individually, you know, does slightly different yeah. things because the texts are composed of different eras, different crises, different for different, but it's always for the sins of the... Like for different right. kings? Yes. Different kings, different periods, and different sins on behalf of the Israelites. Yeah. So therefore, the messaging from God has to be different, different times, right? Yeah. And so the fun forensic part, for, I never liked the political theory part of it that much, but the, <laughs> for, the forensic part of it always fascinated me, like trying to fit in time what these prophets were saying and why they were why they were mouthpieces for God, in a particular way that they were at a certain time, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so thinking about like, me, yeah. like Shmuel thinking, or uh, sorry, what's the, Samuel? I'm like, what's yeah. the, what do, what do yeah. people? Well, he's not, no, he's a character. The book of Samuel is not in that genre. Okay. It's like, Jer- it's like Jer- I'm sorry, I should have said this before. It's like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, right? Yeah. This grouping, right? I don't know um, what any of the like English names of these people Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> book of Samuel is different. He's not, he's not, he's not in, in the, liter- in the genre, biblical literature of that genre of the prophets. Yeah. He's not in there. He's not right? in there. Okay. Even though he's an important prophet right, in right, the right. Bible, he's not part of this canonized literature. I see. I see. You know, basically. Yeah. So uh, I love this. I'd like to make what? it known that there are basically only two people in the whole world <laughs> that I would let Bible explain to me and they're Danielle and John. So thank you both. Uh, the only two that I would tolerate and love. enjoy in fact. So John, I love this a lot. 
can you draw the uh, questionable analogy further than you want to take it? Like what then plays the role of God or the law or whatever in your analogy that you're making of Claudia qua prophet? So the Soviet Union as a ideology, as a whole, whatever, let's say text composed the canon of, you know, Soviet ideology, mm-hmm. right? Might be that yeah. the rules and re- the rules and regs, which, you know, the old Testament's very obsessed with that, you know, <laughs> obedience to those things. Right. Love I do know that. Um, I do know that. And then, um, also, you know, I don't know. So I had, a, John knows this, but I have a little sort of theory about the different types of prophets by period. And they're kind of like excited about the world as it is interested in instigating political change or disappointed because yeah. we won this victory and what do we win? Man, it's kind of disappointing, right? Yeah. Like, and I call them pre-exilic, exilic and post-exilic. So oh. the Soviet, so it's perfect because this, this show tracks the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the decline of the Soviet, uh, uh, you know, union and probably what these people are going to say is going to shift as, you know, conditions shift in, in, in Russia. Right. Yeah. People, I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm straining very hard to call it prophetic, right? I, I, but in terms of the, the like analogy that you're, that you're setting up or the parallels that you're drawing, I do think that like Russia and, and like we could go even further, like Mother Russia, right? Like the idea of that as the like governing ideology that's getting spoken through someone like Claudia, like that makes a lot of sense to me. I yeah. think that's a that's actually a helpful way to read her and especially to like read the scene in this episode where we learn mm-hmm. that she's pushing back against uh like she's yeah. she's trying to to challenge to the extent that she can and then uh like what Russia is saying to her and then ultimately does not challenge and just lets the words speak through her like right, that exactly. to me right. seems incredibly right. prophetic yeah, you, you're actually right in another way that that you didn't even say, which is these prophets. None of them want to be prophets. No, God yeah. picks, <laughs> picks them out and, and forces them to do it, and they're very reluctant yeah. and they, they object often, right? But they still carry God's word anyway, just like Claudia does. Yeah. Well, and that like one of the one of the criteria that must be met in order to be a prophet, at least in for the Hebrew prophets, is is that reluctance. Like yeah. you can't want yeah. that spotlight. That that's like a whole a whole thing. Like wanting the spotlight disqualifies you from the genre of prophecy. Yeah, of, of this group of prophets, the only one who comes from a, a regal stock is Jeremiah. Right? Yeah. He's like, you know, like all these Hebrew Bible books have this genealogy, and it's always phony. But it's like they're trying to say this character is from this line yeah. of people, yeah, and that's yeah, why yeah. it matters. It's kingly, it's priestly, it's whatever. Anyway, he's supposed to be descended from Aaron. Yeah. Right, which makes him special. Yeah. Yeah, he's special. He's not like you know. The, he can do the like, priestly blessing. Yes. So he has a special status, which in America we know is the American Jeremiah, right? Yeah. Were so you thinking kind of, of the from. word teshuva before? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or like. Yes. Or shub, S H U B in English? Is that, is that, well, how would you say that? I would say um, teshuva is like, is, is like, t- like, answering. to turn. Yeah. It could be to turn like, like someone who returns to being religious is a bal tshuva, like a bal teshuva. Like this the, word is in, is in Shulman's book yeah, yeah, yeah. somewhere, it's, but it's, I, have to look, I haven't looked at it. It's, and you know, it's definitely the word that George uses. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah in yeah, fact, yeah. I have talked to him about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been 
a super fun journey into the cave. I think yeah. like we bring the prophets out with us and we yeah. resolve to bring them back in when we bring John on again. Am I gonna in season two be like John now is a sequel? You can ex- you can explain the Jeremiah to us and relate it to the Americans. That is definitely happening oh. in season two. Yeah, you're gonna be like Danielle. I think we can get him to get Gorn. I think he thinks he, he thinks we were kidding about we want you to we want you to ask Lev Gorn, but like I think I think I can turn him. I really do. I think I can you know humor yeah. him enough. And if you look at the UI folder we have, it's very thin and all his names in there really. So we should come back to him again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love but it. There's to, to to facilitate John's appearance. It was a hard negotiation with his agent. Uh, his agent is Reese the cat. Obviously, <laughs> obviously. Uh, Reese drives a very hard bargain. You know, would require several bribes worth of treats or Indian food. But Reese <laughs> was looking out for your interest, John, and said, "If John's going to come on, you have to let him and Danielle, i.e., the two biggest Yankees fans that I, John McMahon, know." have some small amount of dedicated time to discuss the Yankees. So welcome to the segment that I am introducing and then checking out on. (laughs) You have exactly 90 (laughs) seconds. I will start a timer for Yankees Corner. Uh, Yankees Corner. Okay. This is amazing. So, John, I want to hear what you have to say. Like, where are you on the Yankees right now? We are just coming off a stretch where they have won, like, 17 of the last 19 games or something wild like that. I mean, I think it's very simple, right? They're 24 and 9. They're the best team in baseball right now. And it comes down to one question, really, right? They're, they're obviously, they're good. Yeah. But are they convincing? Do you find this team convincing? I mean, here's, you know. here, I love that question. And I think, like, yes, they're convincing, but they've been convincing in the past, right? They've had a lineup like this and a set of pitchers like this in the past. And they, in fact, they didn't change all that much from last year to this year, but like, like you said this earlier before we started recording, they're playing to their potential. And I think like the convincing part of that is, is the pitching staff and the pitching depth, right? So like, even if someone comes out in the third inning, they have, there aren't just three relievers that are good. There are so many relievers that are good. It's amazing. Like, but by the way, that creates a problem because they're better than Chapman, most of these guys, but Chapman is the guy, right? And it's sort of like, at what point do you say, okay, even though he's Chapman, He's not really Chapman, and maybe one of these other people who's absolutely unhittable should be the closer, you know? So I am opposed to the the role of the closer in general. I think, like... <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I, like, I should have anticipated something like this, but go on. How many seconds are left, by the way? <laughs> 11 seconds. I'm, right. I'm, you take the whole... You take it all. I am opposed to the role of the closer because I think that it should be who is someone that hasn't pitched in a couple of days, that has a fresh arm that's going to come out quickly. We can continue to talk about it off air. Um, I agree, I agree. I love that we had some Yankees Corner on there. So we'll have 90 seconds of Yankees Corner sometime in Season 2, but I would like to point out there's one closer that Danielle believes in, and that's Jonathan Keller, the closer (laughs) of Season 1 of The Americans on the Not Quite Great Books TV podcast. We did it! We did did it! it. Yeah. Thank you guys. It was a lot of fun. Seriously. It was so much fun. It was really great. Before we leave, um, just a we've got a lot of stuff coming up. We have a meta conversation about taste that where John will lay out his theory, his grand theory of our pop culture tastes. Um, we are likely going to cover Loki. 
And we also will likely have a an American season one wrap up where we'll sort of like dig into some of the bigger themes for the entire season. And eventually we're going to come back with season two, episode one. So if you are here just for our antics, then there's plenty of content coming. If you're here really for our thoughts on the Americans, then we'll we'll get back to that soon and then i think the i helped with, with the meta narrative on taste or, or hindered it john would you say overall just quick take quick take quick take is i think we should well we'll have we'll, you'll listen obviously to this very very long conversation that danielle and i have already recorded about taste uh and <laughs> then you can then when you come on and make your return appearance you can offer any thoughts you have about that discussion i'm so glad i didn't hear that before because that would have massively influenced yeah. my answers today and it's so <laughs> good that i have no idea what what that was said there because that's not something you can unhear right I forget yeah. everything I say the minute I say it, yeah. so I don't even remember it. <laughs> um, wow. One thing that we all remember is to thank our producer, producer Amy. Yeah. Uh, and billions, billions sucks. <laughs> do, do, do you do you have any shows you want to pitch us in the last in the last final final minute? You're the nah. last at bat, so to speak. Nah, I don't think so. I'm killing it right. with the baseball right. terminology. Called, nice. called third strike. The bat doesn't nope. leave his shoulder. <laughs> don't, wow. don't ruin um. it. <laughs> <laughs> too late. Too late. Too late. Thanks to producer Amy. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. Thank this was like a pleasure. wonderful time. And it was awesome. I, we are very, very excited to have you back once the season going forward. Yeah. I'd love, love, love to come back. We Thank can't you. wait. I mean, I'm also, I'm on sabbatical in the fall, so I'm sure I could squeeze you guys in somewhere. <laughs> we'll take it. Um, and that's um, all. I'll, I'll, I'll be in touch with Reese. We'll, yeah, <laughs> my, my people call your cat. She knows um, my career has been sputtering lately, so I, I, think, yeah, I, think, I think you're going to do pretty well with her. I really do. And that's all for us here on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Bye. joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball. The second thing is, wait, I got to tell the story. So, <laughs> <laughs> see, I told you I didn't have this ready.